You're listening to the Permaculture Podcast. The guest for this episode is John Kotab, who's here to discuss his book, Be the Change. In that travelogue, John shares his research into the threats to bees and what we can do to care for and support them and our other pollinators. Intermixed between conversations with scientists and farmers, he includes details from his journey by bike and train up the east coast of the United States, heading west across Canada, and then back down the west coast, with notes, thoughts, and insights from his journey, as well as portraits that capture his moments with fellow travelers along the road and rail. Enjoy this conversation with John, and I'll join you again after with a question. So I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, to two pretty humble folk. My parents were both in their late 40s, early 50s when I came into the picture. So kind of a generational gap. And I feel like I got a lot of older values instilled to me, which I really appreciate. I mean, my father, he was always peppering in lessons about the value of nature when we were having conversations. I feel like I've been primed quite well to be a biologist. I'm not a professional by any means, but the heart's definitely there. I was in South Carolina, when a lot of airborne spraying of what's called knowledge was happening. And it just so happens that there was a, a mix-up where there wasn't communication between the Mosquito Control Department, the Department of Health, in which it's under, and the beekeepers associations in the area. So basically, dozens of people, including a lot of high-profile people, like one of the fire captains of Dorchester County, got their bees all nixed. It really kind of alarmed me. It alarmed me to a lot of systemic things that are going on where the insects and the birds are, if they are thought of, it's even with contempt, like, oh, these being stand in the way of our economic development or whatever. They're just inconveniences. And I wrote an article for, I was volunteer writing for the Congaree Chronicle at the time, such as like a small chapter of Sierra Club where volunteer writers can get um, some access to the public. So I wrote for them. And... I was going to go on a bicycle tour anyway at that time. And, you know, something I'd always wanted to do, bicycle the Pacific Coast, also see the New York countryside starting in Ithaca all the way to Niagara Falls. And I figured it would be a much richer experience if I did something beyond just get throws and giggles out of it. So I decided to start learning a little bit, researching more. And the more I learned about bees and pollinators, the more captivated I was. So that, that's kind of where it started. I didn't intend for it to become a book until about two years ago. Kept interviewing more people, and the themes of the book kept evolving. It started just talking about pollinators, and then eventually just started talking about earth care in general. It even talks a little bit about you know our you know spiritual relationship with the land. And I, like I was telling you before, I really wanted to choose individuals who could inform me a lot about the what of the world of pollinators, but also the why. Because I, I think there are tomes of books that just pound you with information, like I mean, sometimes for a thousand pages. And I wanted to create a book that was just as much about the why and the spiritual aspect of things as it is about, oh, you know, here's the physiological things about bees and flowers and how, how that all works, how that play works. So I, I feel very blessed to have run into a lot of people who put a lot of heart into the interview and wanted to help make the world a more beautiful place, not just, oh, I'm just here to give you information. And one of the things that drew me to your book 
was that it is this easily readable and quite enjoyable exploration of the United States and Canada along the tour that you took by bike and train up the East Coast of the United States, across Southern Canada, and then down the West Coast of the U.S. and Canada. And you capture these portraits of people and life and your experience along the way, while also interweaving these lessons that you learned about bees and pollinators from a variety of people ranging from scientists to farmers and families, and that it gives us a snapshot of pollinators in North America during this time, and it has a different pace to it than if it were something that were uniquely or fully focused on just the science and research, that it becomes much more of a personal story of your exploration of these ideas. I appreciate you noticing that, Scott. I really mean what I say in the introduction. It says, as you take this journey with me, we will find out both in our heads and in our hearts why bees and other pollinators are so important. You know, this was a journey. This was, uh, I'm going from a place of ignorance. You know, I'm willing to admit that, hey, I don't know everything there is to know about this subject. Um, come learn with me. And I think that's very attractive to a lot of people. In English class, one thing that always stuck with me is that, show me, don't tell me. So I've tried to show the reader the experience rather than just tell them. And what you put together strikes me as being in the same category as some of the best nature writing that I've read over the years. I would compare it favorably to Ben Goldfarb's Eager or something like uh, Coyote America. As some of my favorite recent nature writing, there's a deep value, I think, in our use of these kinds of stories in relaying what is happening in the world in a way that isn't necessarily just facts and figures, that there's an emotional connection that we can build. And that in writing books such as yours, it's something that I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, if you have this kind of a story in you, to tell it in some way, because it makes the world a little bit smaller. And I think it harkens to the oral traditions we had within our communities of telling stories and trading ideas through tales and experiences in an evocative way that can help not only lend knowledge and understanding and shine light on the darkness of ignorance, but it can do so in a way that is accessible and intimate that I think sometimes is missing from something that is purely fact-based or science-driven. Um, accessibility is really, really important. I mean, it even comes down to the, the kind of that kitschy phrase, like nobody knows how much you know until they know how much you care. And not necessarily about them, you know, the person you're talking to, but just like where your passions lie. That makes you knowable. That makes them want to relate to you. You know, they're not just receiving a download of information. They're relating to somebody. And that's, you know, generally how we interact with each other. But I love what... Um, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Her book changed my life. Her book absolutely changed my life. It was recommended to me by one of the people I interviewed, actually. She does such an incredible job of showing the heart of the wilderness and what it means to be a human being in the midst of that wilderness. She's telling you about the wilderness, but she's also telling you about herself 
And it's just, it's so beautiful. I, I hope one day to be able to relate things the way she does. She's a big inspiration for me. But she, she talks a lot about, um, we have to have multiple ways of knowing. We can't just talk about those facts. We have to bring in spiritual beliefs and traditions. We have to bring in multiple ways of knowing. She says that while a lot of people in the scientific community have a lot of beliefs and that are very much like you and me, the scientific worldview oftentimes unintentionally cuts themselves off from the public. And that's the worst thing you want to do. If you're not accessible, it doesn't matter how much information you gather, who's going to want to read it? That's one of the things that really, really sit on me while I'm writing anything. Um, I wrote another book that's just a smaller book, but that book also talks about the interplay between the natural world and the inner world. It's like one of my favorite quotes by John Muir. He relates of his life beautifully in just one sentence. I only went out for a walk and decided to stay out until sundown, for I found that going out was really going in. I love that thought of his. It's so true to life. And you make me think of being a person of a certain age, growing up in a particular period, that there are certain folks who are really good at communicating the ideas that emerge from scientific research. And, you know, some of the authors who I mentioned, I'm, I feel fortunate that they are writing these days, but I also look at Cosmos and Carl Sagan were some of the biggest inspirations for me as a young kid who loved the world because he just talked about it in this lyrical, beautiful way. And I think to a TED talk I saw a number of years ago about how science and research and these ideas can be communicated better and where there is this deep importance, especially now when we're in this, this decade where, where change needs to occur rapidly because of climate change and so many of the other issues that we will be facing in decades to come. And there's this space for poets and storytellers and musicians and others to create this cultural force that helps to change the conversation and help to move us in a direction where we can know these things and understand them as much as individuals, but also within kind of a cultural force. Yeah. When it comes to conservation, it needs to not be this conversational energy where we're going to solve climate change. We're going to stop pollinator decline because we have to. If we don't, something really, really, really bad is going to happen. And that's the energy that a lot of people are just hammered with. And it's no surprise that a lot of people turn away from it. You know, like back in the 1980s, back in the 1990s, the energy was like, you know, we should conserve these things because we love them. They're a part of our world. And we're going to something like it says in my book is that every species on this earth is a gift from our creator. What a shame it would be to throw that gift away. With that spirit, I think you can touch a lot more people. And, you know, the doubtful people will be like, oh, well, prove it to me. And maybe that's where a lot of this more modern attitude comes from is when people talk about conversation is this being an environmentalist or else. You know, I don't think that works either. That positive approach is one of the things that's always inspired me about permaculture is because it's about doing the best that we can in our context with these ethical tools and that not all of us can make the same choices. We're not asking people to be perfect. We're just asking people to be a little bit better tomorrow than they are today in whatever area they want to be. 
or that they feel false to them environmentally. And looking to other disciplines like environmental education and these other pieces is that I don't want to fight against things. I don't want to be anti-plastic or anti-nuclear. I'd rather be pro-reusable items or renewable energies and teach my children and future generations to find the things that they love and to nurture it and to be there for those things, to plant that garden, to take care of the pollinators, to pull on the knowledge and experience that you found on your journey and be the change, and then tie it to things like Vicki Hurd's book, Rebugging the Planet, that can give us the practical lessons of what that looks like. And yeah, that I think that we can do more by loving the world and all this creation than, you know, just fighting, fighting, fighting all the time. And that through that love, we can create connection for others to this work. Absolutely. I, I love that the name of that book, Rebugging the Planet. I'm definitely adding that to my list. I think one thing that's important to keep in mind for the, the listeners, that I think a lot of our distaste and dislike towards insects is just a result of what we've done. It's so difficult to come into this world with, you know, the only eyes we've ever had. And this is what we see. It's like, you know, like half of these insects are horrible and annoying. Flies, wasps, black widows, a bunch of, you know, less, less congenial insects that uh, definitely don't charm us the way bees do. It's so hard to not understand. Like that is not the natural world in the sense that if you go out into the virgin, I don't like the word virgin wilderness. So we just discovered more and more than indigenous peoples have like covered this entire planet. I don't think we can find untrammeled wilderness anymore. Humans have interacted with every square foot, um, foot of dry land on this planet. But with that in mind, I say untrammeled wilderness, very little heavy machinery, industrial pollution. You'll see a cornucopia of insects, only 2% of which you might find distasteful. The rest you'd find beautiful. You realize they do really important things for you. They're colorful. They're not aggressive. When we go on a wage war on the planet, we don't eliminate life. We generally just select for the life that's most hostile, that's most hostile towards the more aggressive beings, the ones that can handle more intense environments, like a lot of our city structures. I think it's important to realize that the world of insects that a lot of these authors, including myself, want to see is when I go out into the forest, national forest, rarely do I see a bug that I feel disdain for. And I really think it's just our human activities that that and the attempt to wage war on the species that we end up just getting the ones left that we like the least. That touches on two things that come to mind. And the first is that from that environmental education background of mine is that we talked quite a lot about the charismatic mammals and that because they're cute and cuddly and part of our culture, because we have things like teddy bears and all the plush animals and things that we've kind of been trained towards seeing those things as beautiful and part of our lives and something that's been kind of normalized. We keep very often the number one and number two pets in the United States, at least are cats and dogs, which are both mammals. So that's what we have in our homes, but we try to eliminate insects and things like that because of a concern that they might bite or might sting. And yet they pose next to no risk to us. It's really fascinating when you work with bees, 
I don't know if emotionally intelligent is the correct word, but you know their ability to perceive chemical signals goes out to the stratosphere relative to ours. They receive so much chemical signals from us. Like you want to know how you feel, the state of mind you're in, you will know exactly the state of mind you're in if you go around a swarm of bees in the hive. They will let you know exactly where you're at because the more agitated you are, the more, the more aggressive they'll be. And the more of a being they will be that you're just like, I hate bees. But if somebody go, like Paul Stamets goes in, is completely calm, completely zen, and he can wear 10,000 of them on him and just it's no sweat. And it's like, he's like, I love bees. What it really is, is like our internal state of affairs is affecting theirs. So it's, it's really easy to say, oh, those insects are mean or hateful. It's like, no, all they know is that the more adrenaline, the more lactic acid, and the more of other chemicals they're sensing in the air off you, the more in danger they are. And they go about that instinctually. On the other side of that, in my other book, Our Greater Nature, I relate this one story about my travels through Western North Carolina by bicycle. And I said, I feel myself changing. This morning, an ant walking on my hair was greeted with even almost a feeling of affection, as if my appreciation and love is expanding to all of life. And I mentioned for surely our master enjoys and smiles upon all his creation. God or, you know, whatever being you believe that created this world, he loves the ant all the way up to the whale. I mean, he created them all. They're his. And we only interact with them in a way that causes our own demise. Everything's working together in nature. It's just sometimes we don't understand that. And I really hope that people can walk away from the book, not saying, not this person so connected with nature. I'm just an industrialized person. Oh, I'm an industrialized person too. Like I said, I'm not an expert at this. I'm just taking people on a journey with me. And I hope that they walk away with it with a feeling of reverence towards nature and frankly, towards themselves. As we talked about before, permaculture says humans are a keystone species. It's just, we have a lot of influence. If we live based upon correct principles, we can make the world an incredibly beautiful place. That's what God said to Adam in the Judeo-Christian scripture. Go to dress his garden, take good care of it, be a caretaker over the land, multiply it and replenish the earth. Not just humans, but all of life. You'll find a lot of Christian themes in the book. I believe that Christianity and environmentalism are not at odds. I think they can be interpreted in ways that make them seem at odds, but we really all are working towards the sacred and protecting the sacred. I really believe that. And one of my permaculture teachers from my PDC, Dylan Cruz, went on to seminary school and has written from that perspective from a number of years. And he was someone during my PDC recommended finding a copy, which is, it's now out of print, but the Green Bible because it highlights in green many of the environmentally related passages that we can take from the Christian faith traditions. Though I am not as deeply engaged in those practices as, as I once was, you and I have talked about it, and I shared it in the recent conversation with the RMA, that I come from a deeply religious background that informed a lot of who I am today and my views of pacifism and nonviolence, why I was interested in engaging in permaculture and community development and activism all stem from those early roots in a historic peace church. For all the 
terrible things that can be ascribed to religion over the centuries, I also still see that there is a lot of value for those who are so moved by it. Yes, yes. I think our narratives really pivot on moments of crises like we're on now, that as a culture, as an industrialized culture, to force to look at what actually were these wise men, and if you're Christian, obviously you believe they're, you know, they're talking directly with God, that God was imparting his wisdom, his vision for the more beautiful world to those people when they were teaching the masses. It kind of forces you to look and say, like, did they really want to create this world that we're in? It's like, no, no. I feel like that crisis really forces us to look and like, what was the intent? What was the vision that was being created here? And then we need to go in that direction because it's not necessarily a dead end other directions, but it certainly doesn't look good. With example, a whole idea of dominion, where Adam was given dominion over all of life. That word meant something much, much more close to stewardship, where, hey, this is not mine. I am a caretaker until the Lord returns. I will be judged based upon how I've taken care of this forest, my family, my own body. And that is a perspective that's very heavily touched on in my specific church, which I'm very grateful for. I'm feeling like we're getting towards the end. I'd like to share an excerpt from my book. Yes, please do. And this is about my bicycling through the Olympic Peninsula. It was a very, very new experience for me. But I write, Crescent Lake, lying to the north of the Olympic Mountains, offers the first glimpses of the mighty trees that will be seen in the days to come. In the darkest corridor of the Olympic Peninsula of Washington, these ancient trees hold millions of mosses, lichens, ferns, even tiny saplings, so that the largest trees were forced unto themselves. As I emerge from the mountain shadow heading west, following the sun's course, her beams shine through the trees with their green dangling moss, luminescing like the folds of a heavenly white gown. The short branches of each tree shine in their perimeter, like the arms of a holy angel clothed in linen, declaring the great mystery of life. The whole of the landscape forested in both trees and lichens now takes on an overwhelming hue of yellow-green as if rejoicing in the day's first sun food. This is life at its pinnacle, I think, reverently. And this is some thoughts I have about that. I said, looking back on this is to realize for me that this day was a terrestrial eternity where time seems suspended in the light of midday and things pass slowly and quickly and as reverent and playful all at once. I know that John Muir experienced that a lot in his travels, and I I'm very grateful to have experienced many days what I I could consider a terrestrial eternity, which to me is a lot of what I'm hoping the readers will experience as they're reading the book. I even think about my young child, Everett. He's two and a half, and I'm humble because he does not need a mountain wilderness to experience that. That feeling of limitlessness, timelessness, nearly every day is like that. I just hope that people can feel that as they read the book. And in the few moments that we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts that you care to share with the listeners? I think about something that Charles Eisenstein says. You can look at everything that humans have done and bemoan our, uh, how terrible we are and think that we're a scourge on this planet. But ultimately, you have to co- come back and look at this truth. We are something the earth has done. We are something the earth has created for a purpose that is far more majestic and beautiful than we can even imagine. Like we were created for a reason, to accomplish something beautiful. And that was John Kotab. You can find him 
his permaculture consulting business, and his books, Be the Change and Our Greater Nature, on his website at cotabconsulting.com. C-O-T-A-B consulting.com. You'll also find a link to that in the show notes. And so, a question to close out this episode. Who are the authors writing your favorite books about nature? I'd love to hear from you so I can explore the books that matter to you. So let me know by getting in touch. Patrons can send me a direct message if you like, or you can visit thepermaculturepodcast.com and click on contact. Until the next time, care for what you love and plant something for our pollinators while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.